Hi, this is Malia Warner. Welcome to Power Principles, the podcast. Welcome to episode 18, The Power of Leaning into Discomfort. Hello, friends. Today's discussion is about the power of leaning into discomfort. First, we are going to talk about leaning in. Leaning in is a power principle in and of itself, in its general sense, and it has multiple applications. We're going to talk a little bit about its meaning and some of its applications in historical context. Next, we're going to talk about the specific power of leaning into discomfort. And finally, we're going to discuss one specific discomfort I believe we all have in common. And my invitation for you and for me today is to notice and lean into this particular discomfort and see what good things will happen. First, let's talk about the term leaning in. We probably have all heard the expression lean into the wind. Growing up, my siblings and I, we always walked to and from school, no matter the weather. Be forewarned, this next story is going to sound a lot like I walked to school in a snowstorm uphill both ways, but it is a true story. So when I was in about first or second grade, I walked to elementary school with my older brother, who was three years older, so he was fourth or fifth grade. And he was not all that chipper about being put in charge of making sure his kid sister made it to school safely. So one winter day, we were having a bear of a storm, wind, snow, and of course, we walked to school. I remember snow taller than my knees, and I must have fallen down like 20 times, and my brother would just laugh at me. It was only three blocks. We lived too close to bus, and that three blocks took an eternity. We finally arrived at the school building only to learn that school was canceled that day because the buses couldn't get through the snow. These are school buses that weigh two tons. Here I am, seven years old, maybe 45 inches tall, and weigh maybe two grams more than a paperclip. I had gotten through a snowstorm that a bus couldn't. So the bad news is they wouldn't let us stay at school. Even though the building was warm and dry and I could have had all my classroom toys to myself for the entire day, they wouldn't let us stay. And if a bus couldn't drive, my mother couldn't get her station wagon out of the driveway. So Mr. J, the principal, shooed my brother and I back outside with a few of the other walkers, and we headed back home. Here's the point of the story. On the way to the school, the wind had been at our backs. On the way home, we were walking into the wind. Now, if you've ever walked into a strong wind, you know what I'm talking about. To stand up straight in a high wind, you can't just stand up straight. You have to lean forward. You have to lean into the wind. Leaning into the wind means moving in the direction opposite the way the wind blows. When I was a college student at Utah State University in Logan, Utah, I tell you, that campus gets a lot of wind, and my fellow Aggies know exactly what I'm talking about. It's built up on a hill towards the mountains. And I lived down the big hill and walked to campus at 5.30 every morning for my job in the cafeteria. And literally, I was walking uphill against the wind. I know, please feel sorry for me now. I think maybe some of the strongest winds I've ever felt were last summer, I did a pioneer handcart reenactment 
on the plains of Wyoming. And I don't know if it has something to do with being near the Continental Divide, but that prairie gets a lot of the wind, like blow your tent away in the middle of the night with you in it kind of wind. And when we were walking and pulling our handcarts, if we wanted to move forward, we had to lean into the wind. Traditionally, lean in has been used in the context of sports to mean to shift one's body weight forward or towards someone or something. In water and snow sports, you can lean into a wave, the wind, a slope, a turn. You can lean into a pitch. You can lean into a throw. You can even lean into a catch. The first printed appearance of the term leaning in was from the poet Hartley Burr Alexander in his book Poetry and the Individual in 1906. Alexander describes the power of poetry as rising from its leaning into the future. In more recent times, the term lean in has gained traction when Facebook Chief Operating Officer Cheryl Sandberg used the term as the title of her book to encourage women to embrace challenge and risk in the workplace. All of these different references boil down to the same meaning. If we are to move forward in sports, in poetry, in life, in work, we must lean in. All of this prepares us to dive into today's power principle, which is the power of leaning into discomfort. Why would we talk about, why would I ask you to lean into discomfort? Think back to episode 12, the power of imbalance. If you haven't listened to the imbalance episode, go there next. It is to date the most downloaded episode, I think because it strikes a universal chord in all of us. We don't like to feel out of balance or out of control or out of our comfort zone. We don't like to feel uncomfortable. But as Sean, my personal trainer, taught me, growth happens in the zone of imbalance. Growth happens in the zone of discomfort. I'll say that mantra again. There is no growth in the comfort zone and there is no comfort in the growth zone. The bottom line, if you never lean into discomfort, you cannot grow. In the practice of yoga, there is an expression, breathe into your discomfort. Yoga instructors emphasize that you shouldn't push your body to the point of pain, but you should take your body to the point of discomfort. Then breathe into that discomfort. Breathe into where you feel that stretch. Somehow, the act of leaning into that stretch, of breathing into that pull, lessens the discomfort until, and it certainly doesn't feel comfortable, but it does feel good. You feel a sense of growth. When we move into a stretch in yoga, our knee-jerk reaction is to move out of it, to move away, to go back to a place where we feel more comfortable, more stable. Yoga teaches that rather than resisting what feels uncomfortable, that you move towards it. And thus we learn to move opposite our instincts. Keep this in mind as we move to the core of our discussion today, leaning into a particular discomfort. 
Earlier, I mentioned that I have an invitation for you that I believe you will accept as long as you can stay with me, because for the rest of this podcast, we are going to talk about mental health. Okay, that's not so bad, but what if I say it this way? Because for the rest of this podcast, we are going to talk about mental illness. Mmm, a little harder. I want you to pause right here and do a quick analysis of your state of mind and your body. Take a moment to observe what your reaction is when I say the term mental health. Still not so bad. How about mental illness? Did you catch it? Did you feel a jolt of resistance? I would say that I still have what I would call an adverse reaction to hearing the term mental illness. It's a sort of rejection in my mind, a resistance in my body, an instinct to shut down, stop the recording, change the topic, leave the conversation, or even just turn and walk away. What did you feel? Maybe you felt a disappointment that this episode that you were enjoying so much suddenly turned to this topic and you really don't want to hear about it and you really don't want to discuss it. Or maybe you think that I just ruined what started out as a really good podcast. Maybe even now you're wanting to hit the stop button and not waste any more of your time listening to a discussion about mental illness because it doesn't apply to you or to anyone that you know, or maybe because it does apply to you and packs a lot of emotion and a lot of reaction in your body. That's okay. Whatever reaction you've had is okay. I am not asking you to change your reaction. I am not saying that what you feel or think is right or wrong. I am not judging, not at all. I am simply inviting you and me to observe our reactions, to pause and notice our thoughts and feelings. And instead of resisting them, instead of moving away or pressing the stop play button, I am inviting us to sit with that discomfort and see what we can learn about ourselves. This is my invitation to lean into your emotions and remember to breathe. I am assuming that most, if not all of us, are like me and have an adverse reaction to hearing the term mental illness. Now, there might be some extremely enlightened yogis and gurus in the world who have no reaction, but most words aren't neutral. Any word we come in contact with triggers some kind of thought in our brain, which triggers a related emotion. And most of you grew up in the same society I did, right? With the same social conditioning about mental illness. And where did that social conditioning come from? Movies, stories, experiences, Did you know that the month of May is National Mental Health Awareness Month? And it has been since 1949. Congratulations, we are celebrating 70 years of mental health awareness. And I didn't even know that until this year. Think with me about our social relationship towards mental illness. 70 years ago, 40 years ago, 20 years ago. 10 years ago, that's when I was seeing doctors and getting confusing, conflicting, and unsatisfactory explanations about what was going on in my brain. And how about this year, 2019? Good news, a lot of positive changes, tons of progress in understanding brain science. 
I feel optimistic and excited that we will continue to move forward as long as and to the extent that we allow ourselves to lean into the discomfort of entering conversations and getting educated about mental illness. I have an interesting story to share with you that has some unexpected twists and turns. In the county where I live, there are two facilities with amphitheaters that were built around the same time in the 1920s, probably the 1930s, as part of the work projects to help the country get out of the Great Depression. One is right up the hill from my house, the American Fork Developmental Center, or the Utah State Developmental Center. The other is the State Hospital in Provo. It actually began in 1885 and was called the Territorial Insane Asylum. It was constructed away from any of the other residential area and was separated from the city by swampland and by the city dump, which is very revealing about the prevailing attitudes regarding mental illness at the time. Since then, the swamp has been drained and the dump has been converted into a municipal park. And of course, the city has grown to the point where there's no longer as large a separation between the residents and where the, quote, asylum begins, although it still is quite a ways up there towards the canyon. Fortunately, the name Territorial Insane Asylum only stuck around for about 20 years. And in 1903, the asylum was renamed the Utah State Mental Hospital, and in 1927 dropped the mental from its name and is currently called Utah State Hospital. So here's the story. In the 1970s, in the stone castle tower that's part of the amphitheater behind the main building, the Utah State Hospital started a spook alley and called it the Haunted Castle. Enter into the picture my husband, who grew up in Utah County in the 80s and 90s. And every October, he and his friends would get all psyched out and dare each other to go to the haunted house in Provo. And they actually gave the residents chainsaws and axes, hopefully without the chains and the blades, and covered them in blood and turned them loose to terrify the outsiders. And it worked. Just ask my husband if he has ever been more scared in his life. So this is his image this is his social conditioning. This experience has formed his reaction. And when he hears the term mental illness, he thinks of crazy wide-eyed men with hysterical shrieking laughs chasing him down the dark hallways of a mental hospital. So how is that image going to work for him years later when his wife is diagnosed with a postnatal mental illness and he suddenly has images of me in a white nightgown haunting him in the halls of our house? It makes sense why sometimes I felt like he was literally afraid of me. I was afraid of myself. I was so afraid of being crazy or of people believing that I was crazy that I didn't say anything for a long time to my extended family or to neighbors or friends. Eventually, in the late 1990s, the Haunted Castle was shut down largely by the National Alliance on Mental Illness, who protested that arming patients with chainsaws and rubber daggers only deepened the stigma that people with mental illness are monsters and prone to violent attacks against the public. I should mention that advocates of the annual event say that it helped to raise public awareness of mental illness. I don't dispute that awareness was raised, but what type of stigma did it create? Stigma is the attached emotions, fears, reactions that we have that instinctively make us want to turn away from an issue. And so again, I invite us all to pause, breathe, 
and lean in as we examine some of the real people behind diagnoses of mental illness. Back in the day, women could be institutionalized in an asylum for having strong opinions. Another common thing that could land a person in an institution was asthma. It was a popularly held belief that asthma was a sign a person was developing mental illness. And you can kind of understand when someone is suddenly breathing erratically when no one else around them is, their eyes roll back, they go a little unconscious, that can seem a little crazy. Also, a hundred or so years ago, if you were hypoglycemic, you could have likely ended up diagnosed as mentally ill and locked away in an institution. Before understanding the effects that low blood sugar have on the body and behavior, doctors diagnosed someone who had frequent fainting spells or who became unresponsive at sporadic and unexplained times during the day was mentally ill. When in reality, understanding the effect of low blood sugar and simply changing a person's diet and frequency of eating, and that individual becomes a normal, healthy, contributing member of society. For me, one of the most fascinating and recent examples of this is the story of Susanna Cahalan, a 23-year-old writer at the New York Post whose story is told in the book or the Netflix movie Brain on Fire. Out of the blue, Susanna began experiencing strange things, such as being in a trance-like state, seeing people who were not actually there, and hypersensitivity to annoying noises. When Susanna's parents take her to a medical appointment, the doctor says that she's been partying too much, working too hard, and not getting enough sleep. They go home and try to proceed with life as usual until Susanna starts having seizures. Back in the hospital, she meets with psychiatrists who diagnose bipolar or schizophrenia and prescribe antipsychotic medication, which Susanna refuses to take after reading all of the horrific side effects. Following another seizure, Susanna becomes catatonic. She is completely unresponsive and unable to speak for herself. The doctors assigned to her case want to move her to an intensive psychiatric unit and treat her as a mentally ill patient. And you can sense her parents' despair as they try to fight for and find out what is happening to their daughter. At this point, and I can't remember how this all happened, that a doctor, and I'll probably say his name wrong, Suel Najjar, is asked to help investigate her case. Dr. Najjar has Susanna draw a clock, and she draws it with all of the numbers 1 through 12 only on the right side of the clock. This leads Dr. Najjar to believe that the right hemisphere of her brain is swollen, so he orders a brain biopsy in order to take cells from her brain for diagnosis and finds that Susanna has anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, which is a big word for what is basically brain inflammation caused by antibodies. So to me, it sounds like kind of an autoimmune attack on the brain. He is able to prescribe her the correct treatment, and although it happens slowly, she is able to make a full recovery and regains all of her cognitive abilities. Here is a normal, historically healthy girl nearly locked away for life, save one doctor stepped in. One doctor leaned in and fought for her. Seven months later, Susanna was back at work writing for the New York Post. What if all mental illness was really a physical issue we don't yet understand? We know people are acting strangely, but why? Why are they acting strangely? 
I am excited for more progress to be made in technology of brain scans and for these neurotechnologies and brain biopsies to be used in getting to correct diagnoses. Still, in the year 2019, there is a too long wait list to get into the Utah State Hospital in Provo, and the patients are waiting in jail cells, arrested due to some kind of erratic behavior. And in the meantime, they are labeled as mentally ill, but no one is trying to figure out why. What is the why? The hallucinations, the trances, the headbanging, the outbursts, the harm to self or others isn't the why. We say the person is mentally ill, but that's not the why. What is the why? I don't know, it might be too late for me to go to medical school, but maybe someone listening will specialize in neurodiagnostics and revolutionize the current status quo, which is to label and medicate. Label and medicate. And here's the full circle twist to the story. In 1966, my mother gave birth to her second child, a baby boy. For nine months, she felt that something wasn't quite right. Finally, she got a doctor to say, your son is mongoloid. Put him in an institution and forget that he was ever born. And the place where they recommended to institutionalize him is the developmental center right up the hill from my house. My parents didn't put him in the institution. They kept him at home and my brother went to school. He learned to read. He learned to do this really cool kind of math that to this day I wish I could understand. He loved to swim. He loved being outdoors on our farm and he loved to read, eventually reading his way through our entire set of Encyclopedia Britannica. He became one of the greatest positive influences of my life, and everyone who has ever met him remembers him. Over the years, my parents would hear the term mongoloid being replaced with the name Down syndrome. Talk about the power of a name, being mongoloid versus having Down syndrome an extra chromosome. My parents didn't put my brother in an institution, but what if they had? What would he have become? Would he have chased my husband down the hall with a chainsaw laughing maniacally because he was made a joke of? Would he have become a circus act? Today, I see more and more people with Down syndrome than I ever did growing up, and I grew up going to my brother's school. I love how the stigma around Down syndrome has changed. I see my friends with their awesome extra chromosome working at the grocery store, at restaurants, at the library. I see them on TV. We're starting to be able to understand and recognize them for their unique loving abilities more than their disabilities. I love that. I love that when we better understand the physiology of the body and the brain, we're empowered to help people be able to live their best lives so that an individual who might be misunderstood or misdiagnosed as mentally retarded or mentally ill isn't locked away behind the stone walls of an institution. I love when advances in medical science and diagnosis help to rectify the image of a crazy person locked in an asylum with the real individual, the human face, that could belong to my brother. I think it's why I so much want to change the name from mental illness to brain illness, 
to put emphasis on the person with a physical brain issue rather than emphasize this stigmatic image of a crazy unknown monster who would chase you down a dark hallway laughing with the perceived intent to do harm. And that's it. That's the end of our discussion about leaning into mental illness. You made it. I hope you feel your muscles of empathy and understanding are a little stretched and stronger than before. I still fight my own aversion to the term mental illness. I wanted to do this podcast because I believe that leaning into our discomfort about the term mental illness is what will lead to greater education, discovery, understanding, treatment options, and quality of life for us all. And it's good to practice leaning in because we are going to have more and more opportunities to choose to be engaged in these conversations about mental illness. In fact, Oprah Winfrey and Prince Harry, yes, I'm talking about your favorite newest father, have teamed up to release a docuseries on Apple TV. In April, CNN reported that the multi-part documentary series, which will air on Apple TV platform in 2020, was co-created and produced by the Duke of Sussex and Winfrey. Prince Harry said, and he said it in a far more charming and debonair British accent than I will, I truly believe that good mental health, mental fitness is the key to powerful leadership, productive communities, and a purpose-driven self. Miss Winfrey is quoted as saying, Our hope is that it will have an impact on reducing the stigma and allowing people to know that they are not alone, allowing people to speak up about it and being able to identify it for themselves and in their friends. In short, we want to blow the stigma of mental illness out of the water. So what do you think? Are you willing to take on today's invitation? The invitation is simply this. When you hear the term mental health or mental illness, pause and observe your initial reaction. Notice if your instinct is to move away, to shut down, to change the channel. Observe your level of discomfort. Then I invite you simply to lean into that discomfort. Stay with it. Listen to the conversation. Stay on the channel. Be engaged. Breathe into any discomfort you feel. Open your heart and mind and be willing to learn and to see a new perspective. One final note. When scripting the title for this episode, I didn't know the correct grammar for leaning into discomfort. Did I use in and to as separate words or did I use the one word into? So I looked it up and there is meaning behind the syntax. The word in means you are already in the place. For example, you are in a room. The word into signifies a movement towards a place you want to be, but are not there yet. So my correct title was not leaning in to discomfort but leaning into discomfort. Absolutely, that is our goal, to lean into these conversations and education about brain health, mental health, brain illness, mental illness. 
We are willing to move into the discomfort zone in order to grow. We are, my friends, leaning into the wind. Thank you so much for listening. This is Malia Warner. I'll meet you back here next week for another episode of Power Principles, the podcast.